Today's program has been brought to you by Calavita. Think outside the bottle with Calavita, America's trusted family brand, makers of extra virgin olive oil and fine Italian food products. Calavita.com. Today's program has been brought to you by Wines of Bordeaux. Visit their website at Bordeaux.com. Hi, this is Celia Kutcher, host of Animal Instinct, and you are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hey folks, welcome to Food Talk. Mike Kalameko here. It's Thursday. It's getting kind of hot. It feels good. Wind's coming out of the south. Wind switched today. It was out of the north this morning, out of the south now, with that means. When it's out of the north, it's colder air. When it's out of the south, it's warm, it's humid. T-shirt weather. I'm loving it. I want to give a quick shout out. We were yesterday. I've been spending some time been trying to trying to give some love to Brooklyn. I mean, like Brooklyn's like this global brand at this point, right? I mean, it's kind of synonymous, synonymous generally. All right, let's try this again. Take seven. It's kind of synonymous generationally with like, you know, the Xers and Ys and millennials who, as Manhattan seemed expensive and got expensive, decamped to Brooklyn and, you know, settled in places like Williamsburg and East Williamsburg and Bushwick and, of course, Carroll Gardens and now everywhere. And with them, it's just this crazy, great, febrile restaurant scene, food scene, bar scene, just a scene around food. And I love it. I love them. I love their energy. I love their enthusiasm. They're just really up in the game. And we spent, I've been spending some time, we did a couple shows in Brooklyn already this season for PBS next season, but I've been spending some time in this really remote, like a place I would have never guessed would have been part of the new cool Brooklyn, as opposed to like, you know, the Mill Basin, the old, the real Brooklyn as the Brooklynites call it, the older Brooklyn. Uh, I mean, you know, Red Hook's like, like, there's only like one way to get there, basically. That's car service, I think. You know, you can take the bus, but I don't. I mean, buses, really? But that's how you get to Red Hook with the bus. The nearest train stops, the F train to Carroll or Smith, and then it's like a 25-minute schlep, depending on how far in you want to go. So that's why they have car services and Uber, right? So I've been going there, hanging out. We filmed there yesterday. I'm going to give a big shout-out to Chef Bill Durney, Hometown Barbecue. Later on in the show, we've got Ryan Sutton, who is the food critic for record, or one of them for Eater, but he kind of gets all the plum jobs, plum assignments, gets to eat anywhere he wants, it seems. Um, Ryan was a real early proponent of, with much love for what Ryan's doing, pretty much declaring early in, in, the, in the review that he wrote, you know, should I say it? Can I say it? Might I say it? This is the best barbecue in New York. This guy's a badass, besides just being a big mofo. He was like a bodyguard. His family had a business. They were like, and they had, they had a euphemism for it like protective services or something yeah basically bodyguards for diplomats politicians guys like jay-z i think you know that kind of thing ballers um and he's a big dude and and that got him to travel around the world a lot because he's traveling with people as part of the you know the the entourage and he ended up being in texas falling in love with barbecue and the guy just must be like a savant because so many barbecue people that we know like they do like one thing and they'll spend like Years trying to perfect brisket, like the kid at Brisket Town, who has great brisket. Or, you know, the guys at Hill Country that just do their best to do, like, Hill Country, Austin style, based on well, one or two barbecue places around there, Kreutz's mainly. This guy's all over the map. It's like he just wrapped his brain around barbecue, 
he's, he's using smoke. He's got a smoker outside that goes all night long. He's got a big grill on the inside. They hold everything. He's got a couple of smokers, actually, that he's using. But what doesn't he do? Like, he does great Texas beef. His brisket's insane. His Texas beef rib is insane. His ribs are insane. But then he does, like, those Chinese sticky ribs, Jamaican jerk ribs. Like, stuff in it. like pulled pork is, like, insanely good. Then he does this lamb belly that you can just have by itself, you know, butt naked, salt and pepper, and eat it with your fingers, which is so worth it. Or if you want to go a little deeper in and eat a little more, he assembles this lamb belly banh mi. On like a grilled baguette, then he grills the baguette right over that smoky fire till it gets super bloody. I mean, I am, I'm still thinking about that from yesterday, which is scary. It's that good. Everything he does, he made an Italian sausage, like a tribute to the San Gennaro Festival, where they make the sausage in house, where they stuff it with provolone cheese. There's tomatoes inside. There's a panada bread. It's like an inside-out sandwich, but he serves it with little bread and tomato sauce. And it's ridiculous. It's like like I grew up eating food like that, you know, Italian, West Philly, duh. And I'm like, who is this cat? Like everything he does, those chicken wings, they're nuts. Like the entire menu. So shout out to him. And also to just the Red Hook scene. Baked was out there early on, like a cute little, you know, baked shop, kind of a, you know, artisan baking, whatever the hell that's supposed to mean these days. But Baked is great. They've been there a long time. Um, uncouth Vermouth. Bianca Moralia, who's just another one of these talented kids making, like, small batch, crazy. Like, every batch she makes is different. She just kind of follows her guts. I'm not going to say there's no consistency, but she doesn't really repeat herself. So, I mean, you could have vermouth flavored with winter squash. You can have vermouth flavored with beets, vermouth flavored with cardoon. It's crazy, and she's doing it all, like, like by the book pure. And I also, my, it was my first trip to Red Hook Winery, which was just a real eye-opener. Because it's urban, it, you know, it's like, obviously there's no vineyards in Red Hook. But they're partnering with winemakers in California, with vinters in the Finger Lakes and Long Island, um, and upstate a little bit, but mostly Finger Lakes, mostly Long Island. And they're picking, like, specific parcels, specific types of viticulture. A lot of it's bio and organic. And, I mean, the, the guy wouldn't stop. We were trying to film. We were on the clock. My camera crew was breaking down, and he literally like went into the casks with me to barrel taste with me. And we came up 20 minutes later. He must have had 30 wines, and they were just all remarkably great. So, you know, after Hurricane Sandy, I thought Red Hook would be, like, done, right? Because they got destroyed. Like, everybody I just talked about closed. Fair, everyone, there was, like, nine feet of water inside the winery. They bounced back the places on fire. So it's like a tribe out there. Congratulations to them. We're going to get to Ryan Sutton soon. If you've never heard him on the radio... Wait, he's great. Uh, if you've never read him, start reading now while you're listening to this interview. He's great. He's just great. Food critic at large for, for Eater. He's super. But my first guest is on the phone, Dwight Furrow. He is a, by profession, I believe, a philosophy instructor. Okay, my brother majored in philosophy in college. I know nothing about philosophy. Um, but he's into food. And his newest book is American Foodie, Taste, Art, and the Cultural Revolution. Dwight, are you with us? Yes, I'm with you. <laughs> How are you, Dwight Furrow? So talk about, I mean, you give, I don't like to sort of give synopses of books. Talk about this book, and then we're going to kind of walk through it chronologically in a way, kind of picking it up where you pick it up, which is like the 50s and 60s. But talk about like your overarching theme for writing this book, what you wanted to say, and what you did say. 
Well, the, uh, the book is, explains this rather remarkable emergence of a genuine food culture in the United States. So the book is framed by this question, why food, why now, at this point in our history? Um, and I assess the significance of this food revolution where it's headed. So the book is really about the important role that taste now plays in our lives. Uh, and the basic theme is that if you're not eating well, you're not living well. <laughs> Perfect. You, you kind of summed it up there. That's great. Um, and I'm not going to guess your age, but I in the, the next tick, my next birthday will make me 60. So that's it. That's it. I am ancient. As my son says, I am in advanced state of decrepitude. That's how he describes me. But the good news about yeah, getting me, older. Me too. The good news about getting older is like I like I try and to like talk to people of this generation, like these younger kids who I just talked about. Shout out to like what's going on in Brooklyn and Portland and Seattle. All these kids who are like in their 20s to mid 30s that are just really bringing this A-game to the whole food scene from farming and foraging to cooking to baking to you name it. It's just a remarkable time. But you go back to when you and I were kids. And like literally like I like my, my grandmother was an Italian American who could cook like you can't believe. Like it was nobody's business. That's all she did. Her husband was a tailor. She stayed at home. She cleaned the house. She raised the kids. She cooked. Did the laundry. But I mean the cooking was front and center. And every time you'd visit her house in West Philly, it just smelled like something amazing because every day she was cooking. Breakfast, lunch, dinner. We ate Sunday dinners there often. They were great. All of her daughters. She had three daughters and two sons. All of her daughters kind of grew up as the women's movement was beginning to talk, and they did not want to be her, right? So none of them can cook, including my mother. So when I was a kid, like, we actually ate, like, jello with vegetables and fruit in it. And you mentioned, like, like people forget this stuff. I mean, who was that? What was that, that canned Chinese food? I mean, even, like, the noodles that were fried came in a can. What was that stuff called? Uh, chop suey. I mean, we ate stuff like that for dinner, I and mean, that was like a good night. Like chop suey was like a good night. TV <laughs> dinners were big. So I mean, that's it's kind of like. Would you say that was the lowest point for American cuisine? Kind of the post World War II into the fifties and early sixties when everyone was just running towards white bread, American cheese, and tang. Oh, I think so. That was when you know, all that mattered was uh, whether the food was cheap and convenient. Um, and, uh, you know, I can remember, you know, my parents, my mother, just bragging about how quick she could get food on the table, five minutes. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think that was the, the low point right in the 50s there when, uh, when you and I were growing up. Insane. So we'll kind of skip the 60s, and I th- because that was there was so much going on in the country, I think, just – amazing cultural shifts and rifts and breaking and i mean in some ways the 60s remind me of what's going on with the with with the presidential race this year just in terms of how we're we're just taking things that had been cast in stone and we're shattering them but we we start to pick up this food scene as a movement and it's as is so typical in america it starts on the west coast want to talk about berkeley yeah, so uh, uh, Chez Panis, Alice Waters restaurant in the uh, early 70s certainly gets the, you know, the uh, fresh food farm-to-table ethos off the ground. Uh, and it helped along, I think, by a lot of the people in New York, too. A lot of the food critics there uh, were on board pretty, pretty early as well. But, yeah, I think it starts with Chez Panis and Alice Waters. Um, 
you know, because California is blessed with a, a great climate for growing fresh food. So uh, uh, I think, yeah, it really takes off. To, uh, it really starts to take off then. And I think also the West Coast, I grew up on the East Coast, and, and like my whole restaurant experience has been Philadelphia, but New York since 1982. That if you look at the New York food scene in the 60s and 70s, it was all French, it was all classic, it was all old school. Nobody was, was screwing around with change. And change almost always seems to come from the West Coast to the East Coast anyway. They're just freer thinkers out there. And, 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 and they have, of course, you know, pretty much a 12-month growing season. So, yeah, I think that San Francisco food scene was like kind of the drop in the stone, the, the ripples that were created that just sort of spread slowly. Um, and we saw that stuff coming to New York. And then, like, I mean, you have this term of e- eating as a social, cultural event. Just, you know, spread that out for me a little bit. Uh, eating as a cultural event, well, yeah, like a social culture, right. sexual to social life. Right. Uh, you know, whenever we get together, whether it's for business or for pleasure, food and beverages are served. Um, and serving of food almost defines what we mean by hospitality. So, um, you know, mealtime is one time when families have the opportunity to get together and friends can get together. So, you know, when we don't pay much attention to food, our social life really suffers, I think, uh, because uh, you know, food is kind of focal point for, for social life. Um, so I think the food revolution has always been about that, whether it was in, uh, you know, San Francisco or uh, on the East Coast in New York. It was really all about, uh, you know, getting people together uh, and enjoying good company and good food they seem to, to go together more so than ever now um you're I'm gonna you're gonna get a little geeky on me here but i wrote this down because i kind of liked it and, and i want you to again flesh this one out for me this i this concept of instrumental reason versus intrinsic value because it's kind you kind of have a little chunk of the book that where that's kind of a core yeah that's uh that's one of the main philosophical themes in the book what i mean by instrumental reason is just a style of reasoning in which efficiency is all that matters uh and when we apply that food of course uh what matters is whether the food is cheap and convenient um and and that's it uh, so i contrast in the book with the idea that some things uh, uh, have intrinsic value. That is to say, they're not just an instrument for something else, but uh, it's just their, the pure enjoyment of them uh, is what matters. And I think that's part of what the food revolution is all about, is recognizing that um, you know, food, sure, we need it for nutrition, we need it for energy, but it also has this intrinsic value, this pleasure it brings to us every day um, if we are thoughtful about it and creative about it. Um, and so I think that's what... Uh, you know, the food revolution has discovered this idea that some things in life, um, you know, are just worth savoring without worrying about whether they're convenient, efficient, or what have you. Which is a relatively new concept for America. I mean, to an extent, we have this puritanical bent. I I grew up in Philadelphia, which is this crazy old Quaker town. And believe it or not, the Quakers had this hegemonic effect forever on, like, downtown Philly. Like, when I was a kid, there were so few good restaurants. It was was nuts. And, And then, like, you know, the city kind of, like, rolled up the streets, like, you know, to this day, it's not like a late night destination. But when I was a kid, if you were eating dinner at nine o'clock at a restaurant, you'd be like some of the last tables eating. Like everybody ate early, uh, and there was it was something was something almost frowned upon about you know pleasure taking pleasure from food was almost like like you know. <laughs> I like, like sex. There was something kind of guilty, like you were crossing lines there. And I think as a culture, we kind of had to had to get away from that. 
absolutely. We've. Uh, I think that's one thing that just held back American cuisine for so many years is this idea that there's something trivial about uh, taking pleasure in food. Uh, and and you're right. I mean, back in the you know when we were growing up in the mid 20th century, uh, it just you know it wasn't right to put uh, to take too much pleasure in food. It was just fuel uh, basically. Um, and I think that we have gotten away from that idea. We now really take pleasure in food, uh, and uh, I think that's been uh, kind of an important revelation for us. We have to eat three times a day. Why not enjoy it? Yeah, and I, I think for me, as an observer, you know, kind of inside that fish tank, again, as a working chef in New York in the 80s and 90s and had my own place, another real kind of big turning point has been the advent of really great ingredients finally via farmers markets via foragers via you know dock to dish kind of fishing you know day boat stuff when when you worked in restaurants in the 1980s in new york even the great restaurants you know my friends working at lutas house of the four seasons friends at code bosque i mean we were all like basically getting stuff off of the, the baldur cisco truck i mean we were raspberries we were eating them out of season uh, asparagus was 12 months a year on the on menus and that was what we did and it wasn't like andre saltner was lazy or alan syak was lazy or roger fed this was what people want and there was a sameness to the menus. And then you get to like the late 90s through the aughts. And this, it seems like we were just awash in ingredients that we've never had from like great breads to great pastas to just, you know, mushroom foragers opening up farmers. Farmers markets opening up in not just New York and San Francisco, but all over, which kind of leads me to this Italian food versus French food, you know, thing that you present, which, you know, Italian food is really simple, ingredient driven, French food, much more technical. Um and you know, I think so. I think what's also pushed this along is the ingredients. No, absolutely. Uh, when you know, when you're uh, using fresh ingredients, that's when they taste best because they can be picked at the peak of ripeness, and uh, you know, then I have to travel thousands of miles. So, um, yeah, yeah, I think this idea of using fresh ingredients is is really important. Uh, it also gives you a greater sense of community because you know who you're getting your food from. Uh, you're interacting with them. They're not just a uh, you know, a, a, a face on the TV screen or something from miles away. It's a person you actually know. Um, so I think all of that contributes to this sense of community and the sense of, you know, the importance of flavor uh, that we get from using uh, fresh ingredients. Again, my guest is White Furrow. The name of his book is American Foodie, Taste, Art, and the Cultural Revolution. This could be the only food book I've ever read. It's not that many pages. What do we have, 160, 150? Yeah, 100 and some, somewhere there. Where well, there must be 50 references to Kant, which is great. I'm like, wow, really? We're drinking Kant in this <laughs> argument? And you do. I have these notes of Kant and mouth taste. I'm like, did I misspell that or what am I doing here? But that, that's pretty funny. But, I mean, you talk about tasting. And I, I'm sure you've read because you mentioned him in the book. I remember years ago as a young chef coming up reading uh, Briette Severin, The Physiology of Taste, the English translation. But this idea also of as we have these great ingredients and as we're appreciating foods the culture, slowing down enough to taste things and then learning how to taste things because really, you know, not everyone has the same chops, right? Not everybody has that same ability. It's kind of something that's learned along the way. Yeah, absolutely. We can all learn to, uh, you know, focus more on the flavor of food, and we can all learn to to get more out of it uh, if we slow down a bit. Uh, I mean, it's, it's you know, we do differ in the way we taste. We have different preferences and uh, different physiology that explains, you know, why some people like some things and not others. Uh, but uh, by slowing down and focusing and being more thoughtful about what we taste, we just get a lot more pleasure out of it and come to, you know, uh, um, sense things in the food that we didn't know were there. Um, so I think this idea of mindful eating uh, is is very important, uh, and it's essential to getting uh, as much out of your food as you possibly can. It's very important to slow down. 
And it kind of, you know, when I look at food now, it's, I don't want to say it's political, but there is this really sort of people are making statements about where they live, what they choose to eat, if they're eating meat or not eating meat, uh, what kind of meats that they're eating. Suddenly food has become wrapped up in a kind of cultural values thing that it's, it's become a symbol of that. You agree, Flesh, because you talk about that a bit in the book, too. Yeah, it's a kind of identity politics, almost, right. uh, you know, with regard to food. Um, but what I, what I find really interesting about that is that we're our, den- our food identities are constantly changing. You know, people go from being, you know, vegetarian to pescatarian, back to eating meat and back to vegetables again. Uh, and, you know, we're always uh, take, uh, incorporating new influences uh, all the time. Uh, so I think that we do establish these food identities, but they're very fragile and they're changing constantly. Well, it's, it's a really interesting read, and I have to say, you know, it's, I mean, the only good news about you and I being our age is we've sort of seen this remarkable seismic shift in the importance of food in our culture, and more so, and again, I'll give kudos to this, this sort of generation that's whatever, under 40, under 35 now, is just how they have embraced food with a passion that, whether it's opening restaurants or opening up little artisanal bitter stores or, you know, uh, uh, you know crazy cocktail mixology-driven bar things. It's just really remarkable to see the passion that this young, younger generation of Americans have for all things food. Absolutely. It's all, all about creativity in one's life. You know, I think that's what this younger generation has, has discovered, that uh, they can get uh, very innovative and creative on a daily basis with their food, uh, and that just enhances everyday life. It makes everyday life more alluring when you're uh, creative like that. Uh, so I think it's, it's, it's really uh, a remarkable uh, transformation, and I think it's very healthy for culture. Yeah, Pizza Helen, when you and I were... When, when our, the, the special night was when Mom would defrost those... <laughs> boneless uh, chicken breasts, poor Campbell's cream of mushroom soup on them, some frozen peas and serve them over rice. Remember that dinner? I remember that dinner. Uh, <laughs> I used to have it every week. <laughs> <laughs> we, all, we all did. And those were the good nights. Uh, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's a really fun book. American Foodie is the name of the book. Taste, Art, and the Culture Revolution. Dwight Furrow is the author. Dwight, thanks so much. Keep up the great works. I know you're, you're a philosopher guy that's now inhabiting the food space. Keep, keep churning out these good work. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for, thanks for having me on. Sure, man. Pleasure. First listening to Food Talk, my next guest is Ryan Sutton. Well, so I'm going to do this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna t- we're going to take a break right now just to let everyone kind of get their breath. Because once Ryan and I start talking, like the air is out of the room. Like I ask Ryan a question and it's like he just goes from like neutral to sixth gear and stays there. I don't know how he does it. I don't know how, but you'll see. You're going to witness this in action. So stay tuned. Ryan Sutton will be next after a quick spot to give a shout-out to the people that make this show possible. And we're just going to talk about what he's been doing at Eater New York covering this dynamic food scene. Folks, Mike Kalameko here. Everybody knows that great cooking really starts with great ingredients, and these days we have so many options to choose from. Well, 
I go back to the Colavita family brand for years, and there really is a Colavita family behind this brand. I got their story long after I started using their products. Back in the mid-'80s when I was the chef at the Ritz-Carlton here in New York City, one of the things you can do as a chef is order your own food. You do the purchasing, and we switched olive oils to Colavita. Uh, when I had my own restaurant down in Cape May, New Jersey, The Globe, for years, that's all we ever poured at the table. That's all I ever cooked with. And then when I started my PBS show in 1999, I thought, you know, if I'm going to look after underwriting and funders, why don't I go after products that I, I actually use at home, that I actually cook for my family with and in my restaurant with. I've been working with them for 15 years with the PBS series and now with Heritage Radio. The Colavita family goes back generations in Italy. They make their olive oil from great sourced olives, traceable sourced olives, just south of Rome in Molise province, Abruzzi, which is where my family hails from. Since then, their family's moved here, so there's Colavita's living in Rome, Colavita's living in America. It's a great, trusted family brand. It's the olive oil I use, and I'd recommend you try it as well. So when you think of the great wine regions of the world historically, I mean, you're, you're going to be led back to Bordeaux, Burgundy, Champagne, okay, maybe Piedmont, Italy, too. And as a chef growing up, boy, if you were working in great restaurants in the 70s and 80s, they were mostly all French, and we grew up drinking Bordeaux and Burgundy and Champagne with impunity. Well, fast forward to today, and I just, just got back from the 2015 Bordeaux Harvest. We were there for a week with a bunch of sommeliers. It was so much fun, and I'll tell you, <laughs> this isn't your grandfather's Bordeaux. There's a whole new generation of young vignerons working with this great terroir that they've lived on, this soil that they know that they've grown up with, and the great varietals that we all know and love, Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, Cab Franc, Petit Verdot, Malbec, you know, this, this style of Bordeaux now that's younger, that's fresher, that's meant to be consumed now and not cellared, because honestly, which of us has a cellar, and who wants to buy a bottle of wine and wait 10 years? So... The Bordeaux whites are amazing, uh, you know, Sauvignon Blanc and Semillon, like, hello, two grapes that we know. The reds tell all sorts of different stories from the left bank style that are a little more Cabernet Sauvignon driven, a little more structured right bank, a little more Merlot, a little easier, um, a little more upfront friendly. But if you haven't thought about drinking Bordeaux wine, give it another shot. For 15 to $35 in that price range, which is my price range, there's tremendous value in there. So... If you're walking past a Bordeaux while, stop, grab a great bottle. These are some of the most food-friendly wines on planet Earth. Grab a bottle, give it a shot, says Mike Kilimeko. So let me tell you. <laughs> one of our so Ryan Sutton's my guest. One of his job, as is mine, is to go out and eat for research. We have to do that. I mean, I, he has a, a deadline, and he has to review restaurants for eaters. So he's kind of on the clock all the time. And I've got to crank out twenty some shows a year. Often they feature two or three restaurants per show. And if you do the math, that means I've got to do like fifty, sixty restaurants a year. And I'm not here in the summer. So it's like I'm out two to three nights a week. So we went to Nam Wa Dim Sum the other day. I'd never been. Uh, Wilson Tang really wanted me to go. And I'm like, okay, okay, okay. I'll come with some friends. You, you, can I do, ask you a favor? Can we BYOB? Because I was with wine industry people. And he said, no worries. We'll, we'll waive the corkage fee. So four of us went to Nam Wa on Tuesday night and managed to go through five bottles of wine. And then one of the women was the Armagnac brand ambassador for the Armagnac region. She had three bottles of Armagnac with her, which we did not do serious damage to, but we did some damage to them. And I'm a pro at this. I will tell you, I woke up the next day a little bit dented. 
the worst hangover of my life was from shooting Armenian cognac, it can be called cognac, with uh, some former Soviet Union colleagues um, in Paris in 2002. My hangover is so bad that I could not perceive basic shapes the next morning. I could not distinguish between a circle and a square, and two hours after I woke up, I had to lead a meeting in Russian in Paris with a group of 20 people whose native language was Russian. Uh, it was not my finest hour, but I made it happen. And that was all thanks to Cognac. This program is sponsored by Armenian Cognac. Try it today. <laughs> that's, that's right. Have another shot, as we say. All right. So Ryan Sutton's the man. He's so fun to have him in here. Um, let's just run through some topics that you've been writing about since the last time I had you in here, which was a little before New Year's. Um, I, you know, I never thought of it. So Carnegie Deli, which is really one of... New York used to be a deli town. I've been here a long time. I just watched deli after deli after deli after deli close. My favorite, my favorite, favorite of all time was was when Abe was alive at Second Avenue Deli. The old Second Avenue Deli was really a New York deli with a full-on deli menu. It wasn't just like a sandwich. I mean, I love Katz's, but Katz's basically is a sandwich shop these days. Uh, always was. And Carnegie always had like some good stuff, and then a lot of the other stuff is just garbage for tourists. But the good stuff was good, and they have good, decent pastrami, really good corned beef. They do order their own pie baking. But Carnegie became this – it was a dad that opened the business, and the dad got old. His daughter married a, a guy who, if I can say he was a schmuck, he married the daughter, ran the place with her. Nasty divorce a few years ago. He ran off with a Thai girl, fought over the building. They own the, they own the building. They own the business. It's a real shit show. Carnegie closed because of also a gas issue because they were siphoning off gas. And after that blow up on 2nd Avenue, like everyone's gotten hosed with gas issues. And now they've reopened. And you make this point, which is true. And I never even thought about it because it's always been that way. Since I've been to New York, they've had this thing. So if you don't know Carnegie Deli, honestly, their corned beef and pastrami is really good. They make it. They have this great place in Jersey and Carlstadt. It's made in-house. I've been to it. I've seen how they do it. It's all old school, on wood, on marinade. You can't criticize it. I mean, you can go hand cut versus slicer all you want, but that's kind of minutia to me. Um, but their sandwich is insane. Like, there was a time when I was young when I could go in there and eat one of their sandwiches because you're 27 and you're a guy and you could eat, like, the leg of a cow, a bottle of Jack Daniels, and run a mile. Those days are long past. So typically people go and they split the goddamn thing. They split the gosh darn thing. You're right. Yeah, sorry. It's, gosh abs- darn. <laughs> it's all right. We can uh, we can bless them and we can curse here. I keep forgetting. I'm not on a radio That's where right. we're going to be fine for <laughs> saying such words. But it's a super big sandwich. That's what they're known for. They're known for serving things like the Woody Allen, which I believe is a combination of <laughs> corned beef and pastrami. And it's about one pound to one point five pounds of meat. It's absolutely gigantic. It is nothing that a reasonable human being could finish by herself and yet they charge i believe three dollars for sharing that now and they give you two pieces of rye bread by the way so for the extra three dollars they show up with a couple pieces of rye bread so you can make that second sandwich correct uh they give you a little bit extra but you know you don't go to carnegie deli to eat bread you go to (laughs) you don't you don't go there for their expert boulangerie program you go there for spice cured delicious extra salty meat and you wait in line for 30 minutes to get there oh i love the one where you had to go wait outside or something uh poor guy behind me had to wait outside that's what it was. That's i got there was. lucky i got there before you know 9 30 but you can show up there at 10 o'clock at night on a weekday everyone's getting out of the theater and you have the japanese tourists and the german tourists yeah. and the american tourists they're all tourists you can you can tell and they're coming here 
because A, it's close to the theater district. Let's be honest about that. It's proximity. It's real estate. It's location. And they're also coming there for whatever reason that I'm not sure. They've been told that this is the apotheosis of the New York deli. It really is, whether you like it or not, it is a diplomat of the American dining deli scene, perhaps even more so than 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 Kotz's or, or Second Avenue deli for reasons I simply can't perceive. But I know it's true. I know it's the biggest diplomat because there are simply more people waiting in line to get here than anywhere else. And perhaps that's just a product of its size. So it, I, I just find it so unfortunate that of all these New York delis, you go to Katz's, you get a great pastrami sandwich, I think for $19.95. Uh, it's thick sliced. You go to Second Avenue Deli, it's around $19.95 as well. It's, I believe, Messine sliced because it's so thin. Uh, I'll be honest, some people are going to hate me for saying this. I like the thin sliced one better. It's <laughs> like eating American Jewish charcuterie. It's so thin, you can almost see through it. It's yeah. pastrami as translucence. And then you go to uh, Carnegie Deli, also $19.95, but they charge you $3 extra. Now listen, uh, first of all, what they're doing here is wrong because it skews the pricing comparison. Because you look at three different menus, and they all look like they're 1995. But you go to one of these venues, and all of a sudden, they tack on that extra $3 fee. So that's unfair point number one. Unfair point number two uh, is the fact that, you, like I said, you can't finish it yourself. Imagine if you walked into Mineta Tavern. You got the Cote de Buffer two. It's $145, whatever they charge now. And they said, by the way, in addition to the $145, we're charging you a $10 sharing fee. For an extra steak knife. For an extra steak knife. <laughs> or for an extra, you know, a slice of lettuce. The Cote de Buff was born to be shared. By the same token, uh, the American New York Jewish Deli Pastrami Sandwich was born. It was put on this earth by God herself to be shared. And these people are making arbitrage on the fact that this was existed to be shared in the first place. So it goes against every single thing the pastrami sandwich was made to be something to be shared something to be split amongst friends and Carnegie Deli punishes you for that and they want you to get another sandwich so that's an unfortunate thing and again they've been going at this sharing charge for a while uh, but they need to end because if they're going to be a diplomat if they're going to bring themselves into the next generation of American tourist attracting deli eating uh, bliss uh they're going to have to stop ripping people off. And that's what they're doing. They're ripping people off. <laughs> and I can tell you today, I can tell you dutifully today, I can report, because every morning, I live on a low east side down by the Williamsburg Bridge, but I work out at the New York Athletic Club, which means I have to bike six miles each way. New York Athletic Club is at 7th Avenue South and Central Park South. So it's corner 7th Avenue Central Park. Um, so I, today I biked down 7th Avenue because I was heading out of the village to go to, to do some food shopping. And I went past Carnegie at around 1.30, and the line was snaking out the door. It was 30 people waiting outside. And I guarantee you it was 15 people inside as, f- for the length of that window. And then once that slot spills up. So that was at 1.15 today, midweek, mid-month, whatever this is, there was a line out the door. It is the, the sharing charge at Carnegie Deli is a way of a story institution telling tourists we're here to, to shake you down for extra money. And that's unfortunate because the tourists who go to Carnegie Deli aren't going to be the tourists who go to Low Life or Momofuku Nishi or, you know, Masa or a lot of our other great and not so great culinary institutions. And it, it would just, it drives me insane the fact that they're going to go to Carnegie Deli and get a wrong perception of New York. The fact that New York is here to rip you off, that this is a, a three-card shell game because the bottom line is they're the only people really in the city 
who do that, and yet they're one of the biggest representatives of our city. And that's why I don't like what Carnegie Deli does, just by the same token that I don't like um, the fact that you have to spend $30 to get into the top floor of the New World Trade Center to eat, uh, you know, like an $8 bagel. Uh, it, it, it speaks of, of New York as a, a 1980s era place where everyone's trying to scam you, rather than the 2016 place uh, where New York really comes wants to welcome you. And just to add it, and we'll switch gears here after this, it's been a long, long time since I've actually sat down at Carnegie because I just, I can't do it anymore, man. The food's too big. I now I, would, I now I go in and get a sandwich to go, and literally I'll eat it at home, part of it, and I'll, it'll make three breakfasts with my kids, corned beef hash, corned beef hash, corned beef hash over the weekend. It's like the only way to do it. But the service used to be also famously horrible on purpose. Like they would just have these old guys and these old women, and they just sucked on purpose. They were just rude. They'd sling the shit on the table. They, you know, they didn't smile. That was, that was part of the experience of Carnegie. It was just like a big FU. Yeah, it took me 10 minutes to get a beer. I was sick. I was blowing my nose. <laughs> I was in a bad mood, and I just wanted to get in and out. Uh, you can get in and out of, of uh, 2nd Avenue Deli pretty quickly, and they'll even toss you a few scraps of pastrami uh, before you buy it to see if you like it or not. Uh, and they you know, do the I, same thing at Katz's, but they don't do it at Carnegie Deli. They don't you know toss you those scraps. Once I asked at Carnegie, just, just I asked. Cause you're right. I go to Katz's, and it's just part of the protocol. As the slicer's there, they always put up a little plate. There's a little tip jar if you want to leave them a dollar. But you get a couple, which is kind of cool because they kind of say, it's that immediate, it's juicy, it's warm. I remember Carnegie saying, hey, can I, and I remember the guy just looked at me. I mean, he turned around looked at me and said, we don't do that shit here, man, no. And I'm like, whoa, that's another. So they're big on the FU thing. All right, let's go, let's go straight to this week's review. So David Chang, I remember, I remember when David Chang opened the original Momofuku, and everyone that was in New York then knows it almost didn't work. Um... He had like a late night menu that was pretty cool. He had like a regular menu that wasn't so cool. He was struggling with the business numbers. It really wasn't clicking. A lot of the young bloggers were going there and eating, and they were saying, David, this late night thing you're doing for the chef's table is so cool. Do it all day. And he was probably a couple of months away from going belly up. But as is the case in the world of anything, of food, of art, of music, somehow he just kind of turned that corner that year, which was 2006, was his first James Beard. And I remember him telling me at the Beards, I was doing like a recorded interview because I was working for WOR back then. Um, he was saying, you know, he felt like like one of those, what's that movie? Like, like one of those, like everything just went right. I forget that movie. But he was saying like, dude, like I was the last guy I would have expected to have won a Beard. Since then, his trajectory has just been like a rocket ship. He's one of the hottest chefs in the country. He's super successful. He's making a ton of money. Um, chefs love him. He's got the, the TV thing. But most importantly, a lot of restaurants that have opened. His most recent one is Momofuku Nishi. Am I correct on that? That's correct. Which you reviewed this week. And you, you started the review by saying you're, one of your old editors said, don't give away the, how you feel about the place in the first two paragraphs. Make them read to the end, kid. Right. You know, don't drop, and he specifically said, oh, I'm paraphrasing here, you know, don't drop the guillotine, especially if it's a negative review. Because, you know, the old school version of a restaurant review was a piece of service journalism. I like this yeah. and I don't like that. Uh, if you like it, you keep reading. If you don't, you stop reading because that's all you need to know. But, of course, I make this grander argument um, that... Uh, in contemporary times, we read restaurant reviews not simply uh, to know whether we should go someplace or not, but for grander reasons. We go for vicarious experience. You know, we understand that most people who read a restaurant review aren't going to go there in the first place. Mm -hmm. They simply want to break uh, during their lunch and to be <laughs> transported to, you know, Bolivia or Russia or wherever else this food critic is going and enjoy that experience with them. And they go for, of course, how to, where to understand value and how to understand value. They go for many more reasons than simply whether to go or not. But I, 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 I contradicted that editor's 
uh, theory, and I said pretty early on in the Momofuku Nishi review that this is not a good restaurant, at least not yet, for just a, a whole slew of reasons, which is unfortunate, but they're related in part to what you were just talking about a few minutes ago, and they related to you know the original late-night program of Momofuku Sambar, which uh, David Chang had instituted, I think, in 2006 when he opened that venue, and he eventually let it take over. And you know the, mo- the whole Momofuku ethos... There are lots of different ones, but I think that the primary one uh, has been serving high-end food in a stripped-down environment. And that's what Momofuku Sambar late night um, epitomized in 2006 and still does to this day uh, throughout the day because now that li- what once was a late-night menu is served throughout the day. You get these small little grape plates, you know, rice cakes with Sichuan bolognese or, you know, uni uh, sea urchin with tofu cream, um, most dishes under $25, uh, most not huge portions. Uh, most of them are kind of strongly flavored, strongly salted, uh, and sometimes strongly spiced from a heat capsicum perspective. And it, it was almost as if this was food crafted for not just a late night crowd, but for a chef's coming to eat after shift because their palates had been reset by testing sauces and they needed their palates to be shocked uh, back uh, into form uh, late at night by uh, by strong cocktails and, and strong flavors, and so that was the original David Chang ethos. And he was it wasn't just you know again crappy food; it was high high end food, elegant food, beautifully plated, but yet at an affordable price. And so that has more or less dictated our whole New York culinary trajectory for the past decade. You know, and it's not just you know getting rid of tablecloths; it's about getting rid of the backs on stools. It's about making good food accessible to more people. So fast forward to Nishi, um, almost 10 years later, or about precisely 10 years later, and we have more or less the same thing. We have this beautiful, interesting Korean-Italian fusion restaurant uh, doing really interesting things. Uh, you're serving, uh, instead of, say, regular cacio e pepe, which is a traditional Roman dish of bucatini and pecorino and pepper, you know, really simple, uh, a dish of thrift, and you're serving it, instead of using cheese, pecorino, which is nice and stinky, you're using uh, a proprietary product that David Chang developed over the course of many years. It's called Hosine. It's a miso substitute. I know it's a lot to understand and process, but basically what I'm saying here is he's changing things around a bit from traditional dishes. He's taking what's simple and he's doing more complicated things with it. And so when you put that hose on into the cacio e pepe and you take out the pecorino cheese, you end up with something that's less stinky and more sweet and it's more of a like a sweet, savory, delicious salty thing and it costs $24 and it's kind of expensive and you're in a super comfortable environment and all of a sudden you're like hold on, wait a minute. This is not the Changian bargain. The Changian bargain used to be high-end food in a stripped-down environment and you'd pay less. But now... You're eating expensive food in a stripped-down environment, and so you're paying more. And all of a sudden, you're like, wait a minute. This is kind of a Faustian bargain rather than a Changian bargain. <coughs> and that's where he starts to get into trouble. Right, you talked about your first meal there, so I do the same thing. You, no reservation. You walk in as a solo diner. or You're at the gym. You're starving. I'm going to walk in. It's near your gym, wherever that is. 8th Avenue, this place is somewhere. Where are we? The uh, village? It's, it's on about 8th Avenue uh, in the 20s. And there, so it's Chelsea. So you go in. You get a single table by yourself facing the wall, which is unusual. That's how we, we design restaurants to get as many seats as we can. You had three drinks, three courses. Tipping is included with this restaurant now, so that's going to. So when you get the shock initially, when you get that bill and go, "Holy shit!" Realize you're not putting on twenty percent on top of that. But still, you, you were you were north of one hundred and twenty dollars. I was north of one hundred and twenty dollars. Yeah, maybe one more cocktail than than an average person would have gotten. Um, but still, it's an expensive restaurant 
uh, not just by David Changian stripped down environment standards. It's an expensive restaurant by Midtown standards, by any standard. And and that's when I realized that the narrative of my review is going to change because originally my narrative wanted to be about why David Chang uh, – about what he's doing with Italian-Asian food is so important. You know, two and, qu- and this is an interesting space. I mean, Alonda is kind of – what Chris Jackal's doing um, is kind of interesting. These, that's Japanese-Italian. But this is like not a whole lot of guys are playing in that sandbox. Not a whole lot of guys are playing with, in that sandbox. So you have the, the Japanese-Italian thing at Alonda with Chef Chris Jackal. You have uh, Basta Pasta yeah. in – um, also, somewhere in Manhattan, I quite frankly don't know where it's it is. Like and you have your that cha- crazy place. Yeah, crazy you have place, your like Japanese Italian. Right, I've been there. It's crazy spaghetti with with flying fish row. Yeah. Chang is pushing the envelope a little harder, and he's focusing a little bit more, in my opinion, not so much on the Japanese influences, but of the Korean influences and the Chinese influences. And the reason that's so important is that you have these two different cuisines, Italian and uh, larger Asian fare, mostly uh, again Korean and Chinese. Uh, but cuisines that are historically perce- perceived as being both rustic and cheap. And cuisines where people tend to value authenticity more so than creativity, which uh, in some people yeah. is the way those cuisines always should be. But uh, David Chang believes that the, the second something doesn't change, or as long as something doesn't change, uh, it does not allow the cuisine to be relevant and to develop into our contemporary uh, era. And so he really gave a birdie flip to the traditionalists of those two cuisines. And I've always believed, uh, and as does Chang, I, I can't speak for him, but I, I think I'm right, that when you move from authenticity to creativity, it's the gastronomic version of moving from dictatorship to democracy. Well, that's why David has said, I, I hate cooking for Koreans. Like his nightmare, because... I mean, I, my wife's Korean, so I know the whole. The, the Koreans that want to eat Korean food want it a certain way. The same thing we Italians do. Like, there's a way to do this thing, and it ain't the way you're doing it. So, David, I mean, I remember reading that quote recently. That maybe had to do with Dookie and and Matt's book, Koreatown. But David, like, said, I hate cooking for Koreans because it's never right for them. It's never right for them, and he has a lot of baggage because he has a Korean family, and and that's why a lot of people are excited about, including uh, people who hail from these other, who hail from the four corners of the earth, are excited about. Um, people cooking outside of their own culinary tradition and history because they don't have a grandmother staring down at them, yeah. uh, leaning over their shoulder and whispering in their ear, that's not the way we did it when we grew up. Uh, so David Chang has delegated most of his responsibilities, of course, to Josh Opinski, the chef from Co. but I'm sure he has a lot of influence on the menu himself. But like I said, what he's doing here is hugely important. He's taking cuisines that used to be perceived as cheap, uh, that are still perceived as cheap. He's taking cuisines that also are used to that, that are that are largely uh, perceived as traditionalist, and he's making those cheap cuisines expensive, and he's making those traditional cuisines more creative. And so he's operating on multiple levels here. He's also doing the no tipping thing. So so many different things we can talk about, but yet. All of those more important points are overwhelmed by the fact that you don't want to eat here because it's uncomfortable um, and because you're paying as much, like I said, as at a midtown restaurant, and yet you're at this cramped Chelsea space. Uh, It's as loud as a Black Sabbath concert, as one of my old school rocker friends said, and it, it, it shows that 
I mean, there's a larger point here. It's not just me saying this is an uncomfortable restaurant. I think this, there's really a larger point here to speak about the future of food because we've been touting these stripped-down environments over the past 10 years because we thought it was the future of food and still very well may be the future of food. But as we pay more, and I, I truly believe this, as we all start paying more, and we will be paying more for food because food prices are going up, because labor costs yeah. are going up, uh, because of the Affordable Health Care Act, whether you support it or not, these are all regulations and phenomena that are making us pay more for food at dinner. And these affect all restaurants. So if you believe, and you don't have to believe it because it's going to happen, if you're paying more for food, do you want to pay more for food at that stripped-down lean environment restaurant or in that slightly cushy restaurant where you have backs on your stools, where you have seat cushions, where it's not as loud? Um, I've always believed, and I I will always believe, that even if it means you're paying a little bit more, you're going to be more inclined to pay that little bit more in that higher end environment. Because when you're at a super loud space like your Momofuku Nishi, uh, the higher prices amplify the flaws. Whereas if you're in a slightly cushier, cushier environment, the, hot, the, the environment seems to justify the prices. And I think that's an yep. important point. You know, higher prices emphasize flaws. Uh, in a not-so-comfortable environment, but they seem justified in the cushier environment. No, you say, this is what I'm paying yeah. for. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's, uh, and you know, I pay my way, too. I mean, I'm not, you know, I think it's a funny thing happened in the aughts with, with the advent of... With the advent of, of bloggers kind of filling a space, with Yelpers kind of filling a space, and even with things like, like you know, back in the day when, like, like when Josh was at Grub Street or, or his, the last couple of years that um, Robert was at the Village Voice, you know, they began to see budget cuts. So you say, so, I mean, a lot of these writers were eating out for free. They were kind of making these deals with chefs. I want to come to your restaurant. I'll write about it tomorrow in Grub Street. I don't have any money. And that's one thing. It's one thing if you're going out and eating $300 worth of food with a couple of friends and leaving a tip on the table. That's great. It tastes great. When you're paying for that shit, it's a whole different experience. And I find that's the same way. I mean, there's restaurants that I really like that I just, I'm just i not going to go back to because I know that if I go with a friend and I always have a cocktail and I always drink wine, um, I'm going to be spending $150 a person in North. That's money. That's like, that's like my mortgage money. That is mortgage money. And if we want this new style of cuisine, you know, high-end food in a stripped-down environment and really great ingredients to spread to other parts of the country – you know, the, the 150 per person model is not going to work. Yeah. And the super stripped down, let's take away all comfort models, is not going to work. There has to be some middle ground. I don't think Nishi is the future. I think, you know, Roberta's is the future. I think, you know, Momofuku Sambar is the yeah. future. It's, it's not Nishi where we're paying fine dining prices on a, on a, on a hard-ass stool. That's, 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 that, that's not the right bargain. You're fun, too. But it, and, and one thing about David that you didn't mention, but I, and I know you know this, and I'm all for this, is, you know, David will say as will other Asian-American chefs like our guys at Fung Tu, that instead of buying commodity pork and commodity chicken and, and 50 pounds, they're getting good ingredients. They're paying much more. They're really getting you know heirloom and free range, and they're buying the same stuff we're getting at here at and that kind of bumps the price up. But it always makes me wonder when I go to eat at like those more generic, cheaper Chinese places, I wonder how great this pork chop thing I'm eating would have tasted if it wasn't commodity meat. Uh, and that's like, there's actually a, a, a scarier way of looking at what you just said. 
Um, and I'll give you a rotisserie chicken as an example mm. of that. Uh, I've been eating one of my favorite things in the world is rotisserie chicken, not roast chicken, rotisserie right. chicken, right. the one that's been spinning yep. for sometimes eight hours and the, the fowl almost confies itself. It's to me, that's American duck confit, rotisserie chicken. And you can get one of these at Gristidi's or Pathmark or wherever made by Purdue. Uh, I don't know how these chickens lived. <laughs> yeah, They're do. probably, yeah, you, you know, do. half of these chickens, again, I'm not blaming any company. Let's forget I said Purdue. They're probably, you know, stepping around in their own poop. And I'm eating this rotisserie bird that cost me $9, and it's absolutely fantastic, and it lasts me three days. And then I go to a high-end restaurant made with fresh, organic, uh, whatever, you know, Kobe chicken that was, you know, fed, (laughs) you know, chocolates from Godiva. And it cost me $40 to get this chicken for two. And I won't lie, it doesn't taste as good to me. And I think that's an important point. That sometimes, uh, point A, is that the more expensive food um, doesn't, uh, the more expensive food and the more humanely raised food doesn't necessarily taste better than the commodity food. Um, and B, sometimes that's not even necessarily the point, although, of course, it should be. Uh, the point is that we're supposed to like the taste better psychologically because it makes us feel better that these animals who involuntarily gave their lives for our enjoyment lived a happier life during their short lives. But still, it's hard to reconcile to me the fact that I could get a much tastier Purdue chicken rotisserie from Gristidi's uh, for a lower price than I can at a, a high-end New York restaurant. And perhaps that simply means we need to recalibrate our tastes and recalibrate our values because we really should be paying more for these birds and, and eating the birds who live better lives. Have you had Have you had the rotisseries from Jake Dixon's farm stand market? I have not. He's really good. He's been doing that since almost day one. Um, it's a halal bird from Queens. I know the guy that does it is just really clean bird. And I, he does whole birds... It's like just around 20 or something, which, you know, a whole bird's going to feed you and I for three days. Or he splits them, and he'll do a split bird for like 15, 16 bucks. It's really good. He used to do it with potatoes underneath, like the French style with the chicken fat. But because he brines the birds, he was getting complaints that the potatoes are too salty. So, unfortunately, he nicks the potatoes. But if you haven't tried him, give him Chelsea Market. I I always love what they do. Will do. Um, All right. Let's segue to – we talked about Hometown Barbecue. I know you love those guys. Um Mofukunishi, Low Life. So here's a place. It just got reviewed. So you reviewed it. I reviewed it. You liked it. I've been there a couple of times because I'm really thinking of doing something with them on, on my TV show. I just really like them. The guys are really ambitious. It's a chef-driven restaurant. He's pushing the physical boundaries of, of where I live in New York City in as much as... If you look at the Lower East Side, I've always said that Clinton Street was kind of the last viable commercial street for businesses. It kind of is... It's like a... It's not just a psychological border. It just is. When you get past Clinton, you're in another neighborhood entirely. There's more schools. It's hard to do. There's liquor license issues. And there's just so much less food foot traffic. So these guys are east of Clinton on Rivington. And it's a chef that used to work at, was it Blanc or one of these good? This guy's got a great Brooklyn resume. It's an open kitchen. I went there twice so far. uh, Found the service to be great. I found the food to be really inventive. I found the execution to be good. I like the wine list. I thought the prices were pushing the border of affordability but then again this is one of these discussions it's really good food you know would I've liked to have spent 10% less sure but these guys have to make a living and then you know Wells came out like two weeks ago and it was like a one star review that was so snarky and 
And it was a little bit about the food, but it was almost one of these, like, dude, what were you, like, in a shit mood those weeks? Because so much was, like, front of the house. Uh, a lot of it's, and of course, I can only speak for myself. I can't speak for Pete Wells. Um, uh, he had issues with the service. Uh, I did not. I thought the service was lovely. Uh, he thought it was pretentious. Uh, I did not as well. Uh, I thought the service was perfect and studied and elegant um, for any area of the city. Um, I, I did think the prices were high, um, as did you. I mean, listen, one of the and smallish portions. I mean, that borscht is beautiful, and they actually split it for me, so I don't, I don't think I paid twice, but there were two of us. But I mean, you're basically looking at a little canal of roe, a little canal of the cream, and a little canal of this beautiful canal of a something that something they did with a beet that must have gone through a Vitamix or a, or a Paco Jet, or Paco Jet at some point because it was like, what the fuck? This it tastes like beets, but it, it, it eats like butter. But you know, but it was like two spoonfuls for thirteen dollars. Uh, and they, to be fair, they they eventually ended up cutting the price of that a little bit. It, now it's ten dollars, but still, you're paying. It's a high end riff on borscht. Uh, you have, like you said, you have your trout roe, you have your cream, and you have your Vito mixed or Paco jetted beet <laughs> cream. Uh, three different canals, about three bites for. Twelve dollars. Uh, to use a little quip I made from my review, uh, if bone broth is often accused of being soup without stuff in it, this was stuff without soup in it, uh, <laughs> which is uh, a stretch for such a traditional dish. Uh, but it's a delicious dish, and for me, something like this and something so small that costs ten dollars, um, and this is going to be hard for I think a lot of us to wrap our minds around. It's easier for a chef to sell or serve a dish that's so smallly portioned as part of a larger test tasting menu where it seems like a gift from the chef that it seems that it's like oh you ordered this $85 tasting menu we're going to throw in this little three-bite borscht dish as well. Now, of course, you know that's factored into the price, but it seems like a gift because you're getting six other you know, larger, meatier courses. But if you just walked in there for a glass of wine and that one borscht dish, you'd feel a little bit ripped off, in my opinion. And that's not to speak poorly of the excellent work that Chef Alex Leonard, who hails from the two Michelin-starred Blanca, at what he's doing. But I think they need to work harder on the perceptions of value. Um, they need to work a lot harder on that. I mean, high end and low end has always existed in this weird, precarious way in the Lower East Side. You know, you have Katz's Deli serving $15 sandwiches, and across the street you have Dirty French by the major food group guys, where $15, which gets you a sandwich at Katz's, only gets you a cocktail at Dirty French. Or you go down to... <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, you go, down service. To, you go down to New York Sushi Co., where you have nail salons opposite uh, $150 omakase place. So it's, it's, I think it's beautiful, and it's a sign of a tolerant and, and thriving community that you can have these high and low-end places right next to each other. Uh, I, I just think that low life needs to try a little bit harder to be a part of part of this community. That doesn't mean, now of course, if you take what I say to its illogical extreme, you may think that, oh, Ryan Sutton wants low life to be a tasting menu only restaurant. And that would really drive a lot of people away. Of course, it's incredibly generous. They're serving this uh, this luxurious food and the sasso chicken and these you know great cuts of whatever in, in an environment that's uh, close to where a lot of you know middle to low income people are living. So I absolutely don't advocate for them going tasting menu only. But th- that 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 trout dish needs to change. That needs to be yeah. part of a tasting menu, and they need to work on some of their portion sizes because really you can blow through a lot of this food in two minutes, and you can be in and out of there like Nishi for you know one hundred and twenty dollars. 
Texas and still need a, a hamburger or pizza uh, afterwards. Hit Speedy Romeo when they open yeah. <laughs> around the corner when, when I'm waiting. I think I think it was friends and family last week. Have you been to Harry and Ida's or Ducks yet? Uh, I've been to Harry and Ida's. I think they serve some of New York's best pastrami sandwiches. Isn't that crazy? So it's, it's this hippie. I mean, I went in and his smoked eels. Just wait, wait a second. I mean, so smoked eel as an Italian American. I remember like my grandma would have live eels in the bathtub in certain times of year. Man, killing them. Those things are slimy as hell. They're a pain in the ass to deal with. So smoking an eel is a real labor intensive thing. You've got to get the skin off of it. You've got to smoke it. You've got to brine it. It's it's. There's a fair amount of bones in that sucker. They do this smoked eel with some kind of kale kimchi thing that's just a, one of the best sandwiches I've ever had. And yeah, they do this pastrami that's just stupidly good. It's the, Their pastrami is less a pastrami sandwich as it is a hometown brisket on a piece of bread with dill on it. Uh, it's absolutely fantastic. And it's, uh, and, you know, circling back, we were talking about Carnegie Dill in the beginning where they uh, charge about nineteen ninety five plus a sharing charge to get that sandwich. I believe Harry and Itis charges seventeen ninety five. They also have a smaller one. And guess what? No sharing charge. Yeah, and it's but it's big. I mean, I couldn't finish like the main pastrami. It's like on a ciabatta roll, I think. And it was just like I don't eat as much as I used to, so I remember like having half of it, and I had the other half like the next day somehow. But that place is cool. It's like a little hippie. I mean, it just reminds me. It's that it's almost that whole Brooklyn feel to it, but on in my neighborhood. So in the Lower East Side on Avenue A, or just south of 14th Street. And it's cool that these small little mom and pop places can still thrive in New York, even though you have these super expensive ripoff places like Carnegie Deli. Um, I, I know, uh, you know, a, a month or two months from now, you're going to see more tourists and more people uh, patronizing beautiful places like Harry and Ida's, where they serve food at a value in an old-fashioned way. And by the way, they do kill their own eels there, which is incredible. Which is incredible. Yeah. It's an incredible story. That, that eel, I mean, uh, chef friends of mine were just raving about it, because we know the work involved. I have to try their place, Duck's Eatery. And again, I want to give you a shout If you haven't been, you've got to try this market uh, dinner table restaurant um i I love it for a couple of reasons because i I know the chef um he was with alan stillman for years which is alan stillman's never been my bag you know that's like steve hansen it's like jeffrey chattero it's that part of town i know who his clientele are but i know this kid's also a hard-working kid i know his ethos he was at quality meats as the chef he moved over to open quality italian his girlfriend who became his wife last spring moved from front of the house to back of the house she's a totally passionate cook um and it's just the two of them plus one other cook in this little tiny kitchen on avenue a and i know it's pretend just sits in the back of a bar called the Garrett, and you got to ring a bell and go through a door. But this is it's a model, like it's a very simple model. They didn't have a lot of money, they don't have a lot of investors. They're cooking off of like, like. It's induction burners. There is no gas. They literally have a stand KitchenAid like your mom has in her house. They have a little toaster oven, which they took from their apartment. They're like the humblest of equipment, and the two of them show up at 9 in the morning every day, build this great menu out. Uh, everything's made in the house. All the breads, everything. All the desserts, everything. It's a little dookie kitchen, and they're killing it. I can't wait to go. Try them. You're gonna, I mean, it's really – menu's not that huge, but I think, again, that's a place with value. There's a bunch of stuff in the low to mid-teens, some of the bigger, broader menu. New dishes hit the low 20s. Uh, there's a really cool take on lasagna that they do. But, I mean, you know, you go in and out of there, two people. Wine list is all bio-organic, small, curated. You know, 160 bucks, two people can eat. That's value. Beautiful. Ryan Sutton, always a pleasure. You killed it. There was not a single um or ah, by the way, in 40 minutes. I was counting. Good work, brother. Thank you, brother. Take a deep breath. We're all going to go on oxygen for the next five minutes, and then it's Negroni time. Folks, see you next week. I've got some good guests. Don't ask me who they are. They're always good. And then we're going to take a couple of weeks off because it's spring break here at Heritage Radio, which means I could take my Thursdays off, but I'll be missing pizza. See you next week. Bye.
Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 